Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. After U.S. troops withdrew from Afghanistan last fall, the Taliban took over, displacing millions of Afghans. Suddenly the Taliban arrived to Afghanistan, especially in Kabul and capital. So it was like a bad surprise, a bad dream. Since then, Nashville has welcomed 500 of those who were displaced. It was a shock for our local resettlement agencies, who were short-staffed, underfunded, and still strained amidst the pandemic. Later in the show, we'll meet a few refugees and learn how the community stepped up to help. But first, last week, a Nashville judge denied a request by leaders in Mason, Tennessee, to halt financial takeover by the state. The state comptroller took formal control of Mason's finances earlier this month. And Mason officials are fighting the move, claiming the financial problems did not occur under their watch and they should have the opportunity to correct them. WPLN reporter Damon Mitchell spent some time in Mason last week, joins us now for an update. Damon, welcome back to This is Nashville. How's it going, Khalil? I'm doing well. How are you, my friend? Good. Wonderful. So, okay, so tell us more about Davidson County Judge Ann Martin's decision to strike down the town's motion to slow financial takeover. What are the implications of this ruling? Uh, So first, what she did is um, she didn't dismiss the lawsuit. Um, She struck down a temporary injunction that would have kind of slowed the process of the takeover. So basically what that means is that so Mason is in the comptroller's hands at the moment, and they have like a a corrective action plan, which includes uh, if they have an uh, expense over $100 that's not on the not for payroll, they have to contact the comptroller to get permission for that. They have to um, submit weekly expense reports to the comptroller's office, uh, bank statements um, with financial transactions, and also they have to make a monthly minimum payment uh, to Mason's Water and Sewer Department every month. State Comptroller Jason Mumpower claims the city's finances have been mismanaged for a while. So who's responsible for the money problems Mason's facing? Um, so so that that is true. It, it has been mismanaged for a while, uh, but it didn't start with the current administration, which is made up of mostly uh, black elected leaders. It, um, it, it goes back some time. Um, and even as early as 2011, a town clerk pleaded guilty from stealing taxpayer funds uh, from Mason. And then in 2015, nearly all of the elected officials resigned because of fraud allegations. So it's a problem that started with the previous administrations and it's something that the new administration inherited. Town leadership brought in NAACP attorney Van Turner to help fight this. Let's hear from him now. And so if there was any point in time that the Comptroller should have stepped in to give us a plan and to put his foot down, it would have been under the administration of David Ward, who was a white male, and not under the administration of Mayor Gooden, who's been paying down the debt that Mayor Ward created. So let's be clear, uh, race is something that is uh, obvious and it's uh, on the table. And I agree with Vice Mayor, you know, this is uh, uh, this is a problem that they've all come together on. I mean, there were white and black citizens there for the town of Mason at that meeting in which they voted not to give up the charter. 
and to, uh, you know, uh, fight to say Mason. So, Damon, what are the NAACP's next steps? So right now they're continuing the the court case. Um, that hasn't stopped at all. But while they're in court, they're also trying to come um, to an agreement or a settlement with the comptroller's office um, so that they don't have to have like this long drawn out process in court. And I, I think they're just hoping that they can kind of step out of court and just come to an agreement and work things out that way. You talked with Vice Mayor Virginia Rivers, who we had on the show last month. She's one of the town officials fighting the state's efforts. She provided some context for why this is so important to her. Mason uh, is where the black people fled from Memphis to come here for safety. So that's how it began. There's a lot of history that has happened to the black people here in Mason. So with that being said, um, that's why I always say we don't want to give up our heritage because it goes way back. That story seems pretty important. What's at stake in her mind if the state does take over? It's that the town will lose its identity um, and kind of historical significance to that community. A lot of the people there um, are descendants of people who were enslaved in West Tennessee. Um, and then also people who um, es escaped and, and fled to Mason. So um, she thinks that that history could be taken away. And then there's also, like, she discussed how when she was younger, um, it was normal for people to grow their own food and um, had just have, like, this you kind of do-it-yourself structure. And that's already been lost, of course, with technology and things like that. So Mason has already lost some of his uh, heritage and in, in history. And she was kind of saying that this takeover could kind of erase what's what's left. It's pretty clear where Mason leadership sta stands. But, you know, what about the residents? You What did you hear from them last week when you spoke? Um, mi mixed feelings. A lot of people um, were less, kind of less angry about the situation. You had some people who didn't want to talk about it. Um, and I, I think as, as I say that, it's also important to know that Mason residents, there, there's not a lot going on to Mason. And there has been, like they've gone through all these leaders with that had financial mismanagement and just issues in the city. So um, for some people, it's kind of like, well, maybe we do need a change. Um, and then also people are kind of looking at Ford and what that could bring. So um, there's a lot of mixed feelings about what's happening right now. So there's no real sense of urgency among the residents there. Um, not the residents, not from the residents that I talked to, but of course, um, it's, it's a town of about, about maybe 1300 people. Um, okay. so obviously I didn't talk to everybody, but the, the people I talked to, there wasn't any sense of urgency. You mentioned, uh, the Ford's plant coming up and it's about five miles away. The future site of the blue oval city, the Ford electric truck and battery plant. What role does that really play in all of this? So I don't think we're having this conversation if the Blue Oval City plant wasn't going to be there. Um, but there's this, in uh, the comptroller's office, they're pretty clear on not commenting while they're in, in litigation. But from the Mason's perspective, um, they essentially, because they kind of control the the water system there. So in, in their mind, it's like that makes them have the authority to say, no, you can and cannot build this or that. Uh, because every whenever you build, if you have homes, you have to 
have a, a supply of water for sewage and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of their, they feel that with the foreign investment is going to bring a lot of development to the area and that by them having that control over the water system that they can kind of dictate what's happened and with the financial takeover they're kind of like they don't they can't have a say over that what are you keeping an eye on as this moves forward i think really when i mentioned the corrective action plan earlier um kind of like what happens next um the comptroller isn't very clear about what happens if they miss a monthly uh minimum monthly payment or if they don't submit something i'm not sure what could actually happen to them so i think i'll be keeping an eye out on if they do fall short and the mason leadership did say that they felt like they were being set up for failure so if that happens what's next we are going to keep an eye on that damon mitchell is enterprise reporter for wpln damon thanks for your reporting my friend thanks carlo we have to take a short break when we come back we'll meet a few afghan refugees who came here on humanitarian parole after U.S. troops withdrew from Afghanistan last August. Were you once a refugee? Do you have questions about resettlement? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Last December, the Islamic Center of Nashville hosted a welcome dinner, the first ever large-scale gathering for newly arrived Afghan refugees. Over 300 refugees showed up. Our producer, Rose Gilbert, was there. Volunteers are filling backpacks with supplies and newly arrived families are introducing themselves to one another, all while little kids run around and snack on fun-sized candy bars. Eventually, everyone lines up for evening prayers, the men in front and the women in back, or in a separate room, but all facing the Kaaba, the holiest site in Islam. Then, it's time to eat. Everyone settles down side by side on the carpet to enjoy their first meal together. Tonight, it's the first major gathering for these newcomers, their first chance to see what life might be like here and to meet each other. Newcomers like Ali Reza Rafat and Sarush Ekteyar. They just met tonight, so they didn't know it, but they were both in Kabul when they heard that the Taliban was taking over in August, and they both made a beeline for the airport to flee the country. For 29-year-old Sarush, getting out of Afghanistan was about keeping his children safe. So we are responsible for them, for their future, to make for them a bright future, a good future, yeah. But having children also made the journey a lot more complicated. Almost immediately after the Taliban took control of Kabul, Sarush's wife Fatima went into labor. Suddenly the Taliban arrived to Afghanistan, especially in Kabul and capital. So it was like a bad surprise, a bad dream. I had a bad delivery, a hard delivery. Fatima worked for the military, and both of them have family in high positions in the Afghan government. They're also Hazara, which is a minority ethnic group that was brutally persecuted by the Taliban in the 90s. So the young couple knew that they had to get out of the country as soon as possible. Just two days after giving birth, Fatima and her family caught a taxi to the Kabul airport. In front of the first gate, there was a lot, there was a lot of people about 
and they said that to you after you left the country. Yeah. yeah. He said that if you are here, they will take you as well like this. Yeah. It's clear there's no turning back. It's been about five months since the welcome dinner. Both Sarush and Ali Reza have a long way to go. But they've been able to get jobs and start their visa application process for a more permanent U.S. residency. Ali Reza even took his driving test. I passed. Hey! Remind me of the word for congratulations. What's the diary? Tabri Washa. Tabri Washa. Tabri Washa. Thank you. Actually, the last time you when you came here, I didn't have any job, any car, so it's uh, more than one month that I'm starting work, and uh, right now I have a job, and uh, uh, since uh, one month, almost one month, I bought a car, and uh, right now, yeah, uh, almost I stand on my own foot, so... I'm proud of myself that right now I'm in America. Now we're going to learn a little bit more about what it takes to help folks like Ali Reza and Sorush and Fatima get settled and find resources they need to thrive here. I'd like to welcome my next guests who play a big role in refugee resettlement. Sabina Moyudin is executive director of the American Muslim Advisory Council. Thank you for being here. And Ramadan Mubarak. Thank you, Khalil, for having me. Uh, Ramadan Mubarak to everyone uh, listening today. Also with us is Louisa Saratora, who is the state refugee coordinator with Catholic Charities. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me, Khalil. Louisa, I want to start with you. Can you break down how refugee resettlement works in Tennessee? Sure. So um, I'll briefly say how it how it typically works, and then uh, how this uh, resettlement of Afghans is is really uh, unique to that system. So typically, um, folks experience a crisis in their home country that leaves them uh, persecuted or uh, with a fear of persecution. We're seeing that unfold um, on our television screens daily uh, with what's happening in Ukraine. Um, They flee to a neighboring country and avail themselves of uh, the United Nations or an embassy or NGO there and uh, apply for refugee status. Um, they need to uh, be able to assert and, and back up their claim that they um, would be unsafe if they were to return to their country. Um, and they go through uh, a very complicated, uh, lengthy, um, extensive system of interviews and security screenings and health screenings and orientations. Um, and um, less than 1% of those that uh, may be in this precarious situation um, ever uh, permanently resettle in a third country. Um, Obviously the first choice for for refugees uh, is to return home if it is safe to do so, um, or to reside in the country in which they've fled to um, because many have lived you know, upwards of a a decade or more in that country and have um, ties speak the language um, in that country. So um, if that's an option, that is also um, something that people may uh, wish to do. Um, But yeah, if neither of those options are available and folks are unsafe to return to their home country, um, they may be approved for resettlement in a third country like the US. Um, And when that happens, 
national organizations um, that do refugee resettlement. Um, secure, uh, they have local affiliates all over the country. We have uh, two such agencies in the Nashville area. And um, those organizations prepare to welcome people. Um, so rent apartments, get their utilities turned on, do grocery shopping, meet them at the airports, furnish their apartments with household goods, um, and then begin the work of um, helping them integrate into their new communities. So um, registering for English classes, enrolling children in school, accessing healthcare and um, other basic needs or benefits and services that they're available, that they're eligible for, I should say, and um, finding employment and, and long-term self-sufficiency. What was the state of our resettlement system as hundreds of refugees began to arrive in our city? Yeah, so um, the refugee resettlement program nationally has really shrunk um, under the Trump administration. Um, the, the annual um, ceiling that the president um, sets um, for how many refugees will be admitted in a federal fiscal year um, dropped um, from, um, I believe it was a high of 85,000 in the last year of President Obama's administration to um, you know, I think just 15 in the last year of the Trump administration. And so um, with lower numbers of refugees arriving, um, refugee resettlement agencies um, did not have um, refugees coming uh, and so had to downsize their staff and their capacity. Um, and so that's um, something that um, in this Afghan resettlement um, intensity, um, resettlement agencies found themselves needing to um, build back staffing and other administrative and service capacities really quickly. So you said it's unique for Afghan refugees. Why? Yeah, so um, Afghans, that, newcomers that we've been seeing in our communities um, did not um, go through that really, um, did not go through the process that I just uh, mentioned um, because um, there was a immediate danger to their um, safety with the US military withdrawal um, in August of 2021. And so um, many Afghans uh, in Afghanistan and especially those who are being resettled here have um, worked with our US military or contractors as interpreters, as translators, as other kinds of um, critical support um, for our military overseas and they were in um, real danger um, with the US military withdrawal. And so people were literally evacuated from that active combat zone um, to military bases overseas and then military bases here in the US. And so it was a very rapid um, evacuation and processing um, operation um, because of the um, really intense uh, safety crisis that, that people were in. Sabina. What inspired you to get involved? Tell me, what role has AMAC played in this? So uh, before the recent arrival of this current uh, group of Afghan refugees, um, the American Muslim Advisory Council had never done any kind of um, resettlement support uh, before. Um, I mean, we were founded in 2012 and focusing more on Islamophobia, but we kind of found ourselves in, in the middle of this. Somebody reached out, an, another refugee resettlement organization, 
um, that's not local uh, reached out to me in September asking, well, where do Afghans live in Nashville? And so that's when I reached out to uh, Mas Brother Masood and uh, members of the Nashville uh, the Afghan, National Afghan Association and asked, yeah, where, where do Afghans uh, uh, live in Nashville? And so that's kind of how I was drawn in. Um, I got word for that uh, Nashville was expecting 300 refugees. Um, and that was back in September. Uh, I had contacts at NICE. I reached out to them, reached out to Catholic Charities. Um, and brought them together with our local Nashville uh, Afghan communities to have conversation around what is happening, how many we're expecting, how can we be prepared, how can uh, we assist um, uh, the resettlement uh, agencies in, in, um, in, uh, in integrating this community, um, these new refugees into the community. So, that's how I uh, got pulled into it. Um, and I think AMAC has kind of been here in terms of kind of bringing all different partners together. I think in the past, NICE and, and Catholic Charities, NICE meaning National International Center for Empowerment, and Catholic Charities, um, they didn't really work together. They did their own resettlement uh, you know, work, but we realized very quickly that this was going to be, uh, you know, more than just um, refugee res uh, resettlement, but uh, a crisis response because so many were coming in such a short time frame. And, and of course, by uh, middle of February, it was over 530 came. And so just kind of sitting together, having meetings on Zoom uh, on a weekly basis and bringing different partners together, you know, United Way uh, came in, we started a welcoming Nashville fund to think about what are the needs uh, this, this, uh, this population will have, how can we meet them? So many, so many different um, uh, partners kind of came along. We had Community Resource Center, we had Metro Action Commission, WeGo, of course, MNPS, JFUN, and uh, Vanderbilt Immigration Law Center helping with uh, asylum applications. So just kind of seeing how, where, where the gaps are, what we need to do, who we can bring, who weren't normally a part of this re re uh, refugee resettlement um, uh, work uh, and pulling them in and say, hey, how can you come in and help? Um, and so uh, I, I think it's been wonderful to work with everyone and see how we can as a city, as a community, come together um, to tackle a problem. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We are talking about refugee resettlement and how it works here in Nashville with Larissa Saratoya from Catholic Charities and Sabina Mohideen from the American Muslim Advisory Council. Now. You know, Sabina, you mentioned that it was a crisis response. Tell me, what did that look like as you all coalesced to come together to provide this aid? I, I, I think um, it's just people, families came in so quickly, right? And, um, and as Louisa said, the 
resettlement agencies were understaffed because they had to cut back during the Trump years. And, and as you had, uh, you know, uh, your guests uh, speak that the actual Afghan refugees say like they were unable to reach out to the caseworkers because the caseworkers were overwhelmed. And so it was trying to figure out wait, how, how do we solve this problem? How do we step up? And, and I think in this time frame, more people came on, organizations were created and uh, like the Tennessee Resettlement Aid um, and, and more partners were br brought on so we can identify those gaps and services and see how we can best um, uh, fill in those gaps and, and go forward with the, um, with the best interests interests of the Afghans in mind. Louisa, I understand that there are different categories of refugees. Can you can you break that down for us? Like how it affects the resettlement process? Sure. So um so the, the process that uh you asked about and that I described at, at the beginning um is how um is refugees in the legal definition of refugees, but of course, colloquially, colloquially, um, <laughs> you know, and in common parlance and, and in experience, you know, refugees, we use much more broadly of people that are fear, fleeing persecution um, and may come to the US um, and seek humanitarian relief in a lot of different ways. So um, asylees who may arrive in the US and apply for relief here, um, other kinds of immigrants, um, with special kinds of status. Um, a couple that are um, particular to our Afghan newcomers are um, folks who arrived um, with what is called a special immigrant visa or SIV. Um, we saw some folks that were evacuated that were in that process. That was a special program um, that the US government had specifically for Afghan interpreters and translators that worked with the US military, so very specific criteria. Um, so folks have been arriving through that process um, for several years. Um, and some of those folks that were in process were part of this group that was evacuated um, in the late summer, early fall. Um, and then um, because of the um, and Sabina captured it perfectly, the crisis response, you know, the immediate need to evacuate people to safety. Um, once people um, are um, in the US, right? So folks were evacuated and admitted to the US under um, a status, a temporary status called humanitarian parole. Um, once folks are, are in the US, um, they're not eligible for that refugee status. That's a, a legal status that is applied overseas. Um, but the US um, realized that we needed to offer um, a form of relief and safety to people that were evacuated. And so they were admitted under um, this temporary status um, for up to two years. During that time, um, folks with this status will apply for asylum, um, which will give them um, a permanent status in the US um, and a path to citizenship. At first, Sabina said that this was a crisis. And Louisa, as we're moving forward, what's the focus of the resettlement efforts? For Afghans specifically or the program in general? I'd like to hear both. Yeah. So um, 
We continue to resettle Afghans. There are some smaller numbers of folks that are still on military bases overseas that um, continue to be admitted through a, a much more, um, uh, how should I say this? Uh, in a much less um, intense volume as those first uh, four to five months of the year. So, you know, we do expect to see um, small numbers of Afghan newcomers continuing to enter the US, including in Middle Tennessee. Um, and then for the, the traditional resettlement program, um, there the Biden administration has really thrown um, its um, support behind and, and demonstrated its intention to build back that program um, to the robust humanitarian relief program it has been historically. Um, so increasing the annual ceiling of refugees to be admitted, um, that uh, requires, um, you know, we talked about the kinds of um, infrastructure um, damage that the, that the local programs have seen, and that's um, happened overseas as well. And so the entire program is really in a state of rebuilding um, and of growth. Um, and, um, you know, the US has really demonstrated its commitment to, um, to rebuilding that program um, in line with our, with our values as a country of um, providing uh, safety and security and opportunity um, for folks. That is Luisa Saratoya. She is the state refugee coordinator with Catholic Charities. Luisa, thank you for joining us. Sabina Moyudin is going to stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll talk about the ways the community fills in the gaps with resettlement when the systems in place fall short. Are you a community member wondering how you can get involved? Tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we were talking about the pressure resettlement agencies faced as they scrambled to resettle 500 Afghan refugees since last August. Now we want to talk about the ways our communities came together to help out. My guests are Masood Sidikyar, who does research work for the Islamic Center of Nashville, and Salim Tahiri of the Afghan Association of Nashville. Ramadan Mubarak to you both. Thank you, Bijan. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for being with us. Masood, I want to start with you. You've stepped up and assisted many Afghans as they came to Nashville. You also left Afghanistan decades ago under similar circumstances. Tell me about how you got here. We, uh, our family left Afghanistan uh, during the war with, uh, with the Soviet Union. And we went to neighboring Pakistan for a couple of years. And uh, from there, we uh, came to the U U.S. in January of 1988. Um, and so similar in, in the sense that it was an active war zone and um, leaving Afghanistan with just the clothes on our back to uh, to, to escape the, the conflict there. Salim, I understand your journey was much different. Uh, yes. Can you tell me about it? Uh, yeah, uh, I come to Nashville uh, through a special immigration visa in September 2017. 
Um, and when I got to Nashville, there was a lot of challenges for me because having uh, even I had a brother in law living here. Um, and uh, the challenges were uh, a, a different culture and uh, issues with the employment and with the housing, all those issues occurred uh, when I come uh, there to Nashville. And um, keeping that in mind uh, and all, all those uh, issues that I, I, I was facing. So when I heard that new Afghan families are reaching out or coming to Nashville, then I jumped in and I talked with Sabina, Brother Masood, and also the Afghan community leaders uh, and was trying to help these people. Now, Masood, tell me what type of challenges did you face when you got here? The community was much smaller at the time, so um, it was it was difficult to really rely on uh, on resources to help guide us through the process, uh, starting school uh, and not really knowing much about uh, what to expect or getting help with homework or really any of that. So it was a completely different world, a much smaller world at that time before internet and so forth. And uh, our family and support structure just really didn't. Um, couldn't guide us uh, because of the language barrier. That was the biggest challenge. Now, how did that experience you had influence you to help people, particularly now? I mean, it, it really uh, allow, allows me to sort of think back and, as, as Celine put it, uh, remember those challenges of, of trying to figure out schools and then um, acknowledging and remembering uh, older siblings as, as they tried to figure out high school and, and how to get a job and transportation and, and all those other aspects and the struggles that uh, were associated with those. Uh, we, we've all lived through that and, and we all know the, the great help that we've got from the, from the community, from the neighbors and, and others who showed compassion and the difference that it made uh, for us. So, so to be in a position where uh, we can then um, do something similar is, um, uh, is a blessing. Sabina Mohudin is still with us. When you hear Masood and Salim talk about how why, and why they offer their help, how does that make you feel? They, the two of them have been doing incredible work. I mean, it's just been such a pleasure um, knowing the Afghan community and, and their commitment to making sure this new group of refugees are getting um, their needs uh, met. And I, I think, you know, we have these discussions about, um, you know, initially, you know, we talked about crisis response, people needed housing, food, you know, clothing, th things like that. But we, we, we are strategizing on, you know, what are the long-term needs? And that is, to, to build a sense of community, right? How, how do you, how can people really be integrated into society if they don't feel like they have a community? And I think that's what, um, you know, some of the you know, challenges Muslims was talking about, you know, way, you know, way back in the 80s, what the, our, our, the Muslim community was small, uh, didn't have as much to offer. But now with such a you know, large Muslim community or 45,000 in Middle Tennessee, um, for, for us to help this new Afghan uh, um, community 
build their own community, have their own connections and build those friendships and meet people like Masood and Salim um, who have come here, who raised their children or raising their children successfully, have, have learned, has learned how things work and, and for the new arrivals to see them say, hey, you know, I can be like them in a few years. I, I can be on my way to being successful and thriving uh, here in Nashville. Sabina, what type of difficulties are women who've been resettled facing and what's being done to address those problems? It, um, women have come under a lot of different circumstances. I've met women who were literally studying in med school who fled Afghanistan and, you know, because of the Taliban takeover and they knew they weren't going to be allowed to study. So they're sitting here and they're thinking, how, how do I start again, right? Um, and, and those are difficult conversations um, to have, knowing that it's gonna be a long process. And then there are women here who uh, literally, you know, they came uh, without their husbands. So their husbands were like, we want, we want, they wanted their wife and children to leave and be safe. And they thought, they could uh, rejoin their families quickly, but the wife and children are here alone and they're struggling. It, it's, it is a struggle. Um, for some women, um, the, out of necessity, they're going to have to work and they never worked before back home. So it's, it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of things to learn and unlearn um, sitting here. And, and um, you know, you add on top of that the trauma um, that people have gone through with, with the, um, you know, quick uh, evacuation um, of Kabul last uh, August. And, um, you know, it's a lot to deal with. You know, Masood, Sabina talked about the difficulty in the transition and essentially the culture shock that many of these women have faced coming here to the country. In your assistance to them, what are ways that you're able to kind of ameliorate and assuage any tensions and apprehensions they may have? Uh, there's a lot of um, education involved because a lot of them have heard things or assumed things in terms of what their rights are and aren't. Uh, for instance, those that you know wear a hijab and cover their hair, they're not sure exactly um, how that plays out here, whether they're entitled to those rights or not. So that's something that you know, uh, Sister Savina and others continue to provide information and in partnership where we're able to share that information with them. Here are your rights as a Muslim. You're free to exercise and practice those uh, in the context of your personal life, in the setting of employment, as well as education. Here are the rights that you have. And then it's also about availing them uh, to some resources, whether it's from a uh, food perspective, where to get a halal food. And then, you know, other women, for instance, who want to get clothing, but they want it to be appropriate where they're properly covered in a very modest way. So where do you get that? And how do you, uh, how do you find that? So those are, um, those are some, some um, challenges that we, uh, examples of challenges that we hope to uh, continue to solve and, and address. What language barriers, what are the language barriers that refugees face? I mean, how difficult is it for them to get vital information, the information they need? Salim. Uh, the, uh, uh, most of these uh, guys who came to Nashville, 
uh, yeah, they do not speak English and the local languages, they only speak the local languages because these were the military people and uh, non-military people and they were not expecting the rapid evacuation. So when they got here, we are, the language barrier was a lot and still they have problem uh, with the language. Uh, it is that, uh, a tough job and um, there's, uh, there were some ESL classes, but the ESL classes are not um, yet sufficient. Uh, usually we get call and do the translation. The community does trans, uh, translation work to, to help them. And also some other organizations beside that are helping to these refugees. But um, okay. going forward, um, ESL will be one of the challenges that these guys need to, uh, to tackle. I guess some guys are very old, so it will be a, a tough thing and also a challenge for them to learn a foreign language in, in, a, in a short period of time. What languages do they speak? Uh, they speak Pashto and Dari. Okay. You know, we talked in the last segment about the ways the system falls short. And I know the three of you work pretty closely together. What have you been able, what have you been able to provide collaboratively that the system in place hasn't? Masood. Um, I, I think that, you know, a lot of it has to deal with providing them in, initially uh, on day one, just the, the emotional support, knowing that they left, as uh, Sister Sabina mentioned, uh, in a situation of crisis, an active uh, combat field, and, and to leave that to come here as they first arrived in, in the hotel rooms of, of what are they going to eat on day one? And, and is there someone to, to welcome them and to let them know that there is a community here? Uh, because a lot of them just, just randomly, you know, ended up in different parts of the country. So um, they really didn't know anybody, didn't know that the a community existed. So just helping them understand to see someone that speaks their language, that can help them navigate the day one, day two immediate needs, and then continue to help them understand the broader picture. Uh, we're parts of the, um, we're gaps that really the, the um, uh, settlement agencies weren't positioned to uh, respond to at scale. Uh, so those, that, that was part of it early on. And as we continue to move forward, it's really uh, focusing on sense of community because some of the uh, new arrivals are isolated. Even now, they're in different parts of uh, they're in different parts of the greater Nashville area. And so, although they may have been here a little uh, for for several months, uh, there's still isolation, especially if they're single and all alone by themselves. So, continuing to check on them and and help them integrate into the community itself has been something that's been ongoing in terms of a need outside of what the settlement agencies are able to provide. You know, you talked about community and I wonder about folks you've helped here resettling, you know, and it's Ramadan. How are you all helping folks who've resettled here celebrate Ramadan? Sabina. Well, well, yeah. Um, so when Ramadan started, um, the first day of Ramadan, we delivered uh, gift, gifts to uh, all the families. And it, it was just um, a prayer rug, a, a prayer bead, and a few other knickknacks, um, something for the kids. 
Um, but also included in that was um, information uh, about knowing your rights during Ramadan um, as a Muslim. And so just explaining how Ramadan and uh, our celebration, Eid al-Fitr, at the end of Ramadan, how, how American Muslims celebrate. Because we know that Ramadan um, would be very isolating for this new community. I mean, of all the things you miss uh, when you leave your, your home country, uh, I think Ramadan just kind of brings back all those memories and intensifies those emotions um, of missing your family and friends in your life before. And here, like Masud said, that it's isolating. Um, so we had information on uh, mosques and, and their programs during Ramadan because there's special prayers in the evening. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, how do you navigate work while fasting, asking, like having a little break so you can break your fast, or if you're in school, um, being able uh, to kind of be excused from uh, gym, gym class, intense physical um, exercise, and then knowing that um, when they, they eat celebration starts that you can request a day off if you're working and, and children excused from school. So we've done that. We've also working with Salim and Masood. We, we, we work with World Central Kitchen. We're going to have to end it there. Okay. I want to thank all <laughs> okay. of you so much for being on the show. That is Sabina Mohyuddin. She was joined by Masood Sidikar and Salim Tahiri. Thank you all very much for being with us. And thank you for tuning in this hour. Tomorrow, Tennessee plans to resume state sanctions executions with the execution of Oscar Smith. Tune in to learn more about our state's history with capital punishment. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. And tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lekalona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.